If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, second to last chapter of the Bible. This morning we'll be beginning in verse 9. Last week we listened as John described the new heaven and the new earth that will be the experience for every person who places their faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, as their only hope to, rest, to be rescued from what we deserve because of our rebellion against God. It was an incredible description of the new creation, the age to come, life everlasting with God. And the primary lesson from that passage came from the voice that was from the throne that said in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God being with man. This has been his plan and his intention all along from the very beginning. But ever since the fall, in order for man to be in the presence of God, it had to be a mediated presence of God. His presence had to be mediated in some way, whether it was mediated through the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament or the high priest or the tabernacle or the temple or whether it was mediated through Christ himself on earth, who although Jesus Christ was God, his presence, the presence of God in him itself was veiled, as the Christmas hymn says that we know so well, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. But because Jesus Christ, because of his perfect life, his substitutionary death, those who place their faith in Christ alone for forgiveness of sins will one day be in the presence of God unmediated whatsoever with no mediation. And that's what the new creation is all about as we read last week and this week. Redeemed sinners in the presence of God with no mediation. No need of a middleman, no need of middle agency. Just unmediated access to the sovereign of the universe forever. That's what the new creation is all about. And that's what's being described for us in this morning's passage as well. In this very colorful and fantastic vision of the new Jerusalem as John receives it. We were briefly introduced to the city that comes down from heaven from God last week when after John sees the new heaven and the earth, he also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, in verse 2, coming down out of heaven from God as a, as a bride adorned for her husband. But now, in this final vision of the book, John receives one more vision, and this one is a more detailed look at this very same city, the new Jerusalem. And this final vision stretches from verse 9 of chapter 21 all the way through verse 5 of chapter 22. And so I see three distinct sections in this whole passage. 
And as recently as a couple of weeks ago, I had intended to cover each of these three sections in three separate sermons. But as I studied this week, I saw such a distinct unity between them that I felt covering them in three sermons really would have done a disservice to the unity that I see here. And so I intend to cover this entire passage this morning. So if you're really paying attention to what I say each week, yes, I am going back on what I said last week, which is that we won't finish by Easter, but Lord willing, I do intend to cover the rest of chapter 22 next week, and so we will finish by Easter. But if you know me, you're not going to take that to the bank because (laughs) I will probably have to walk that back next week when I study that passage. But there are three sections here in this passage that we'll look at, and we'll use this as a guide this morning. Verses 9 through 21 of chapter 21, John sees, he tells us what he sees in the city, gates and walls and all of that. And then in verses 22 through 27, he will tell us what he doesn't see in this vision of the city. And then in the first five verses of chapter 22, he will describe a river that flows through the city. And all of these are descriptions of the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem is, once again, all about the redeemed of the ages, experiencing unfettered and unmediated access to the God of the universe forever in the age to come. So let's read our passage and then we'll walk through each of those sections. Beginning in verse, 20, uh, verse 9 of chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the 12 gates, 12 angels And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. 
and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in thanks this morning for the truth that we find in the scriptures of a future that awaits all those who place their hope and faith in Christ alone, that we will enjoy something that we've never had here, which is unmediated, unfettered, uninterrupted access to you forever, that we will dwell with you and you will dwell with your people forever and ever. Father, I pray that the words that are in this passage from your holy word would interact with our life and bring us to a place of understanding and application where you would be glorified through us individually and corporately as a church. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So in that first section there, John describes what he sees in this vision of a city. And just like really any other ancient city in the Roman Empire, this city has many of the same things in it. It has gates and walls. It has guards and sentries. It has foundations and walls and streets. But this is clearly not just any other city. This is a city unlike anything that any human has ever experienced in John's day or in ours. What John describes here is larger than we can fathom and more beautiful than we can even imagine. And so again, we are confronted, as we have been many times in the book of Revelation, with the need to determine to what degree do we interpret this stuff literally versus interpreting it figuratively. And again, I'm going with a strategy that I've employed throughout our study of the book of Revelation, which is to consider the content and purpose of the apocalyptic genre of literature, which again includes these fantastic images and visions that are communicating a deeper and spiritual reality. So with that consideration, the adage then is to interpret this figuratively unless we're given clear indication that something should be interpreted literally. So John is given a vision here in chapter 21 and 22 of the eternal state, the new creation in the age to come. And the purpose of this whole vision is to center the eschatological hope of the church of John's day and of our day to center our eternal hope 
on the reality of unfettered and unmediated access to God forever in the age to come. That's the goal here in this whole vision. And so John is given a vision of what that eternal experience will be like. And then he uses human language to try to paint a picture that will convey adequately the glorious experience of everlasting life with God. And the result of that is this vision that we have in chapters 21 and 22. And I truly think that we miss the point of this final vision that John has given if we take his words, the words that he uses to describe the city in order to formulate a, a physical picture of a physical city with all of these various characteristics and dimensions. Because the result of doing so is something that is so foreign to us as to be almost unrecognizable. Let, let, me, let me just give you an example. We're told that the city measures 12,000 stadia. That's an actual measurement in ancient times. And 12,000 stadia is equivalent to about 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles. And it's in a cube, so it's 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles tall. Israel itself is only 300 miles long and 85 miles wide at its widest point. So this is describing a city that is much larger than the country of Israel. In fact, it is the size of two Indias put together. India is about 1.1 million square miles, and this is describing a city that is 2.2 million square miles. So it's like two Indias put together, but then formed into a cube, because it goes not just 2.2 million square miles on the ground, but it reaches into the sky, literally into outer space, 1,500 miles. Outer space begins at 62 miles above sea level. The International Space Station orbits the Earth at 250 miles above sea level. And this city, described by John, reaches 1,500 miles high. Now, are we to interpret that literally? Or are we just to interpret from this that this is a really big city? Now, the enormity of the, of, the, of the city described by John here is not a hermeneutical challenge to us. It's, it's not troubling hermeneutically by itself. But then we're told that it has a great high wall around it. Now, what's the picture that you get if you're told about a city that has a great high wall around it? Well, you think about a high wall that that because it's high, it obscures at least part of the city. And perhaps it obscures all of the city from the one who stands on the other side of the wall. But compared to the enormity of this city, as described by John, this wall is tiny. How high is this wall? It's 144 cubits, which is about 216 feet. Now, that was a lot larger than any wall in the ancient world. The wall around Jericho that was impenetrable, was only 13 feet high. 
And this is 216 feet. It was enormous. But again, compared to the enormity of the city as described by John here, a wall of 216 feet compared to that would be like the ratio of a line of ants in front of a six-foot-tall person like myself. Now, that's not an impossible image, and we could understand it that way. But we have to understand that that image completely distorts the whole point of this passage. Similarly, the streets that are made of gold. We're told that they're made of gold that are like transparent glass. Now, there's no such element as transparent glass in the human experience in the present age. Not that there couldn't be such an element of transparent gold in the age to come, but to try and think of what that would look like with our mind's eye today, if that were meant in any kind of literal sense, again, misses the point and clouds the purpose of this passage. So I could be wrong, and all of this could be literal. But even if it is, don't miss the point of this passage. And that is that if we have placed our faith in Christ alone, crucified and risen again, then we will experience a future with unmediated, unfettered, and uninterrupted access to the sovereign of the universe forever in the age to come. That's the point of this passage. Not to get so caught up in the dimensions and the gates and all of that. So with that caveat in, in place, let me make just a few observations about this city as described in John's vision. First, the angel that shows him this city comes to him in verse 9 and says, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So again, just like we saw last week in the first few verses of chapter 21, this new Jerusalem is both a, a person and a place. It's both a city and a bride. And in this sense, the city itself is likened unto the people of God. Just as the church, the people of God in the New Testament is referred to by the Apostle Paul as the bride of Christ. But what better way, if your purpose is to convey an unmediated relationship with the God of the universe, what better way to convey that meaning than to liken it and compare it to the most intimate relationship in the human experience, that of husband and wife, groom and bride. The new Jerusalem is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Secondly, the city here is contrasted with another city, the city of Babylon. Verses 9 and 10 may sound familiar to you because they are almost a nearly perfect image, mirror image, of earlier when John was given the vision of Babylon, Babylon's fall. Listen to chapter 17, verse 1, and compare it to verses 9 and 10. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And then verse 3 says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. It's almost a mirror image of what we see in verses 9 and 10. I think, I think the contrast is intentional here. We're intended to see a contrast between two cities and two women. Between the great city, Babylon, which represents the world, 
and this new city coming down out of heaven from God, the new Jerusalem. Between two cities and two women, if you will, figuratively understood as women, Babylon is known as the great prostitute, and the new Jerusalem is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so the readers of John's revelation, both in his day and in ours, are meant to be confronted with a choice with, who, with whom we will identify. Will we identify with Babylon, the prostitute, the world around us in the last days that's seeking to draw us away from God and rejects the gospel in Christ and seeks to just fulfill our fleshly desires? Will we identify with the world or will we identify with the kingdom of God and the church, the bride of Christ in this age? Note also here that John says that he's carried away in the spirit to a high mountain and given this vision, which reminds us that this is a spiritual vision that ought to be interpreted in a spiritual way and not just physically. So third, John, um, either now unintentionally or intentionally, he draws our attention to the number 12. We see this in this whole passage. There were 12 gates. On the 12 gates were 12 angels. Each gate was inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, the wall around the city had not one foundation, but 12 foundations. And on the foundations were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The city, as we mentioned, measured 12,000 stadia. And the wall was 144 cubits, which is 12 times 12. It's unmistakable that the number 12 in this vision is meant to convey something to us. And throughout the Bible, and even throughout the book of Revelation, the number 12 symbolized completion and perfection. The 12 tribes of Israel represent the completion of the people of God in the Old Testament. The 12 apostles of Jesus represent the completion of the New Testament people of God. The 144,000 that we saw back in chapter 7 and chapter 14, which we said at that time represented the church, the, the entirety of the church in the tribulation age, is 12,000 times 12, representing the completion and the perfection of the redeemed. And so the 12 gates here, the 12 angels on them, the inscriptions of the 12 tribes, the 12 foundations of the wall, the, the, the 12 inscriptions of the apostles, the 12,000 stadia, the 12 by 12 of the, of the wall are all telling us that this city is perfect. It is perfect. It is the complete and perfect fulfillment of God's plans for the eternal state. And the focus here, again, should not be on the dimensions themselves or how many gates there are or how many foundations there are, but on the fact that it is perfect and complete. And it's not perfect and complete because it's 12,000 stadia and all of that. It's not perfect and complete because it has 12 gates and 12 angels on the gates. It's perfect. Those things are just pointing to the fact that it's perfect. It's perfect because 
of the fulfillment of God's presence being unmediated and unfettered in the eternal state. That's what makes it perfect. And then finally in this section, John describes the unmatched beauty of the city. Whether it's the jasper of the walls or the pearly gates or the foundations that are made of all these precious stones and rare metals or the streets of gold themselves. The point is that this city is absolutely stunning and breathtakingly beautiful. More beautiful than the most stunning scene in creation that you've ever witnessed. Think of what that might be for you. Whatever vacation you went on, that you had the privilege to see something in God's creation that was astoundingly, breathtakingly beautiful. It took your breath away. Whether it's the Niagara Falls, like we mentioned before, or a beautiful sunset over a vast ocean, or snow-capped mountains that extend to the horizon. Breathtakingly beautiful. No matter what it is, it absolutely pales in comparison to the beauty and the brilliance of this city. And why is this city so brilliant and so beautiful? Verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It is beautiful and brilliant and stunning and breathtaking because the glory of God is beheld as it never has been before. What is the glory of God? Church, the glory of God is the beauty of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the sum total of all of God's attributes rolled into one and then made manifest, made visible. The sum total of all that it means to be God manifested somehow. That is the glory of God, and the glory of God can be observed, can be beheld only to the degree that the presence of God can be experienced. And church, the presence of God has never been experienced like it will be one day in the age to come. God's presence was always veiled to man. It was veiled to Moses. Moses could only see God's back as God passed by as Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock. God's presence was veiled to the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness. His presence was seen in a, in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was veiled to the Israelites as, as God met only with the high priest in the holy of holies, the most holy place in the tabernacle and the temple. As he appeared, as the, as the presence of God somehow appeared above the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And God's presence was veiled again, in a sense, in the incarnation of Christ. Yes, the fullness of God dwelt bodily in Christ. But again, as that Christmas hymn says, he was veiled in flesh, the Godhead was. 
It was veiled in his flesh. But church, there is coming a day when the presence of God will be veiled in no way. There will be no veil whatsoever. And his presence will be experienced fully. And his glory will be held, will be beheld in all of its brilliance and beauty and splendor forever. And it will be perfect. It will be perfect. And so John describes for us here what he sees in the city. He describes what he now doesn't see in the city in verses 22 through 27. Having told us what he does see, John now tells us five things that are absent from this vision of the New Jerusalem. He says there's no temple, there's no sun or moon, there's no closed gates, there's no night, and there are no unclean things or unclean people in New Jerusalem. First, there's no temple. There's no temple there. He doesn't see a temple, which is odd that you would see Jerusalem but not see the temple. Jerusalem was known for its temple. Historians are, are, like, like to describe Jerusalem as a temple with a city built around it instead of a city with a temple in it. But John sees no temple in the new Jerusalem. And then we're given the incredible reason why in verse 22. Because the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. He is the temple. So there's no need for another temple. What is the purpose of the temple? The purpose of the temple is because God wants to be with his people. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to dwell with his people. But in the age to come, he will dwell with us in perfect completion. And so there will be no need for a temple of any kind. When Jesus came, there was no more need for a physical temple. Because he was the temple. But that temple was crucified. It was destroyed, as he said. But in three days it was rebuilt and went to heaven. And now the church, the body of Christ, is the temple. This is what Peter meant in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, when he said, You yourselves, church, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He was talking about the church being the temple. But church, don't we know that the church is a woefully and dreadfully imperfect example of the temple? But it points to another day that's coming. It points to an age to come when no temple will be needed because God's presence will be among his people, unfettered and unmediated. He himself will be the temple. Secondly, there's no moon or sun, or at least we're told here it says that there is no need for a sun or a moon. And why? End of verse 23. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Again, the glory of God made manifest through the unmediated presence of God will be enough to light the city. And we're told in verse 24 
that by the light of God's glory, the nations walk and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. This reference to the nations uh, coming into the new Jerusalem is fulfillment of that vision from Revelation chapter 7 where we saw, where John saw that great uncountable multitude before the throne and before the Lamb. And people from every tribe, every nation, every people, and every language. This is fulfillment of God's promise to Father Abraham. When God promised to him that from you, Abraham, all the peoples, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is fulfillment here of God's eternal and sovereign plan for a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-language, multi-people group eternity. There's no temple because God is the temple. There's no sun and moon because God's glory gives the city light. Third, there's no closed gates here. No closed gates. Verse 25, its gates will never be shut by day. The reason for gates in any ancient city is to keep the bad stuff out and the good stuff in. It was a defensive posture against attacks from the outside. And the open gates in the age to come represent that there will be no evil to keep out. There will be no need for a defensive posture in the age to come. Another reason for gates is to allow access to those who are permitted access, that are permitted to enter. They're granted that entrance through the gate. If there is no gate or if the gates are closed, then access is denied and prohibited. But this picture of the new creation, again, is one of unfettered, unmediated, and uninterrupted access to the sovereign God of the universe forever. So the gates are never closed. Fourth, and this relates to there being no closed gates, there is no night. And so the gates are never shut during the day, and they would always be shut at night, but there is no night. Night and darkness in Scripture are symbolic of evil and sin, and there will be none of that. That was done away at the end of last week's passage. There's no more of that in the age to come. And this is also relayed by the fifth thing that John does not see. He says that there's no unclean thing or unclean person. Verse 27, that nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. No unclean person will be there. What is an unclean person? Well, it's a person who's not a clean person. And so what's a clean person? Well, it's not a person that is perfect because none of us are perfect. It's not a person who is without sin. None of us are without sin. And according to John here, a clean person is a person whose name is written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And only those who repent of their sins and place their trust in Christ alone for rescue have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And so nobody who hasn't repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone as their only hope will be in this city. They will, as we learned at the end of last week's passage, 
they will be thrown into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur forever. Only the, inha the inhabitants will only be those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And again, we remember when were those names written. Not when I was 17 years old back in 1984 when God saved me from what I deserved. But before the foundation of the world, these names were written in the Lamb's book of life. So no temple, no sun, no moon, no closed gates, there's no night, there's no unclean thing, there's no unclean person. And so now John describes not only what he does see and not only what he does not see, but now he concludes this vision by describing a river that flows through the city. And these five verses from chapter 22 really do continue this same vision sequence that began back in verse 9 of chapter 21. Remember that the chapter divisions in our copies of the scriptures are not inspired. They were added much later. And so verse 1 of chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. The river of life is symbolic of life itself, and in this case it is symbolic of eternal life. There's, the psalmist writes, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Jesus told the woman at the well from Samaria, that the living water that I give to you will well up in him, will be springs that well up to eternal life. Ezekiel's vision of the new Jerusalem in chapter 47, and by the way, chapters 40 through 48 of Ezekiel's prophecy forms the bulk of the background of this whole passage describing the new creation in chapters 21 and 22. But the vision of the new Jerusalem in Ezekiel 47 included a river that flowed from the throne or from the temple that brought healing and life to the Dead Sea. And this river here in chapter 22, which originates, it, it originates from, we're told, from the throne of God and the Lamb, which by the way, don't miss there that indestructible link between God the Father and God the Son. This river comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb. There are not two thrones. There is one throne and one God eternally existing in three distinct persons. But this river that John sees here coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, it brings the water of life. George, Charles Ladd uh, writes, the presence of the river of life in the New Jerusalem is a picturesque way of saying that death with all of its baleful accompaniments, I had to look up baleful, it means threatening and menacing. So this river is a picturesque way of saying that death with all of its threatening and menacing accompaniments has been abolished forever. And life reigns supreme. And it flows from the throne of God, reminding us that God is the source of all life and all eternal life. This river here 
we're told, flows through the middle of the streets of the city, which communicates something about the centrality of eternal life in the age to come in the New Jerusalem. But I think we also see here a nod to the restoration of the Garden of Eden. Because verse 2 goes on to say, On either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the tree is on both sides of this river. And this reminds us that when mankind rebelled against God in the first Eden, what did God do? He expelled man from that garden. He expelled man from God's presence. But now, the tree that bears fruit is also on the other side of the river as well. The river brings life even to the trees on the other side, and that's where we are, on the other side of Eden. And oh, what a beautiful and incredibly fruitful harvest these trees provide. In the present age, we're accustomed to fruit trees that bear fruit maybe once or twice a year in different harvests. And then it's only one kind of fruit. But these trees bear fruit every month, month after month in the age to come. And each month a different fruit. And there we have the number 12 again. 12 different kinds of fruit. The bountiful provision from God through the river to these trees is perfect. And perfectly demonstrates the lasting victory of life over death. And as a result, the restora- as a result of the restoration of this garden, verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed because the curse of the fall is now broken. There is no more curse. And then John concludes the vision. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in this city, and his servants will worship him. That will be our service to God in the age to come, forever worshiping him. Verse 5, they, which is we, and I'll just replace the they with we here. We who have placed our faith in Christ alone, we will see his face, no longer dimly as in a mirror, but now face to face. We will see his face, and his name will be on our foreheads, and night will be no more, and we will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be our light, and we will reign forever and ever. We will reign with our God and with the Lamb forever. And since the river here reminds us that all life comes from God, we are reminded that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins were made alive together with Christ by grace through faith in Jesus The river that brings life to the redeemed in the age to come can also bring life to sinners in the here and now if they come to faith in Christ. And so have you? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, 
your only hope to experience the new Jerusalem and to be with God in the age to come, your only hope is Christ. Your hope is not your church attendance. Your hope is not your ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be a better Christian. Your only hope is in a lamb who died in our place on a cross and rose three days later. Will you trust in Christ alone as your only hope? And church, if you have placed your faith in Christ, then let us drink deeply from the well of Christ. Let us drink deeply from the well of his word in this life while we have time, knowing that in a little while, just a little while, we're going to drink from this river and we're going to delight in the provision that comes from its waters and we will serve and worship our God and the Lamb and reign with him forever. Let's pray. Our God, we, as we pause to thank you for just the blessing of revealing to us what everlasting life with you is like. Our petition is, Lord, that you would help us to live in the here and now like we really believe this. To fight against indwelling sin as if this stuff were really true. To strive for a practical holiness and godliness in our lives as if this stuff were true. To seek to deepen our walk with Jesus as if this stuff were really true. And to bring the gospel to the lost as if this stuff were really true. Father, forgive us for losing sight of this eternal perspective. Forgive us, O Lord, for allowing ourselves and our lives and even our families to be distracted and preoccupied by the cares of this present passing world. And help us to live today in light of this already determined future. Father, we pray for those who are among us who don't know you through faith in Jesus. And we ask, Father, that you would grant to them the faith to trust in Christ alone. And Father, as we consider this future, the reality of this future, where we will enjoy unfettered, unmediated, uninterrupted access to you forever in your very presence, oh Lord, remind us that we can enjoy your very presence today through Jesus Christ who lives in us by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.